Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. We've got a special edition of the Collective Voice of Health IT with representatives from the Clinical Standards Development Organization, HL7. Now, HL7 has been in the news lately. They're showing up more and more in regulations and, and really in the broader national discussions about healthcare policy, including social determinants of health and interoperability. With me today is HL7's Charles Jaffe and Diego Kamenkirk, HL7 Deputy Chief Standards Implementation Officer. Hello, and welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a weedy podcast. And I'm your host, Matthew Albright. I'm Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous Payments, Z-E-L-I-S. Zealous's mission is to enable providers to simplify and save on their payments and claims. I also serve as the Communication Committee Chair for WEDI. That's W-E-D-I. WEDI is a national membership organization where the health IT community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. And as I mentioned, we've got Dr. Jaffe. He's Chief Executive Officer of HL7. He's uh, both a uh, PhD doctor and an MD doctor. He serves as HL7's Global Ambassador, fostering relationships with key industry stakeholders. Dr. Jaffe's completed his medical training at Johns Hopkins and Duke Universities and was a postdoctoral fellow at the National Institutes of Health and at Georgetown University. And over the course of his 40-year career, Dr. Jaffe has been the principal investigator for more than 200 clinical trials and has served in various leadership roles in the American Medical Informatics Association. Also with us is Diego Kamenker. Diego Kamenker is a co-chair of the HL7 International Council and the past chair of HL7 Argentina and a former member of the HL7 International Board of Directors. He is founder and coordinator of the popular online HL7 Fundamentals course. He owns KERN Kern IT, located in Buenos Aires, Argentina. So thank you, Dr. Jaffe. Thank you, Mr. Kamenker. Uh, good to have you here with us today. Thanks, Matt. We look forward to chatting. Excellent. So let, let's start right away and, and uh, talk a little bit about HL7. Some of our listeners may uh, know it very well, but others may be, uh, may be just hearing about it for the f- first time. So maybe we could talk about the origin story of HL7, where it came from and, and where it is now. So apparently I uh, shook the weeds when I shared you the real truth about the origin of HL7. Apparently, uh, Eve was complaining to Adam that they never talked anymore. And uh, Adam said, well, I have a solution for sharing ideas, and that's HL7. Now, I'm not sure that's written down anywhere, but I'm going to go with it. How about you, Diego? I know the real story. Oh, okay. <laughs> Tell me that then. <laughs> I talk a lot with Ed Hammond, and uh, we have a podcast too. It's called Exploring Healthcare Interoperability. And you can find it in Spotify or Apple or whatever you get your podcast. And uh, we interview a lot of the origin, original uh, people working in HL7 30 more years ago. So they were trying to get the lab results into the EHRs. And they wanted more cheaply than they were doing it and more and, and faster. And with not much negotiation 
which was going on. And that means we need the right data and the right time for the right person. And they began with, uh, with lab results because everyone, we, we did uh, 11 episodes so far and everyone started by getting the lab results into the EHRs. And that was our, in my case, was the same. I, want, I, I sell laboratory information systems and my customers want their lab results into the EHRs. So it's amazing that almost everyone started that way or almost everyone we interviewed in our podcast. So that was the beginning in my mind. Uh, the, the need for interoperability without so much negotiation and trying to reuse the effort because that's one of the main problems. Every time you have a new interface, you need to negotiate during a lot of uh, months to get things right, uh, right. And then with a standard, you don't need to do that or you need to do less of negotiation and, and, and testing. You just move forward with uh, faster. And if you think of our history and you measure it by decades and by the order of magnitude that take in money, in US dollars, that they takes you to connect a new customer to your whatever you have, you will see that we are going from several hundred thousands to zero. That's fire. Very good. So, so three three things I want to pull uh, out of the the history. Uh, one, uh, the mythology of Adam and Eve, uh, Doctor Jaffe. I, I love that story, and and there's a truth to that story in the fact that it sounds like from Diego's uh, viewpoint that maybe Adam and Eve were working off of two different interfaces, and and without getting too ridiculous here, right? It, 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 I want uh, dig dig a little bit deeper in in what does this mean for communication? A standard development organization. And I think Diego gave an example uh, of lab results and getting those into the EHR, right? Um, how do you take um, this idea that communication has to be better between two parties and then moving to, again, what Diego said, right data, right place, right person? Can you, can you dig into like the philosophy behind that, behind any clinical standards development organization? I think there are two important elements of this. One is uh, the ability to understand uh, what the other person is saying. It's really inherent in the um, relevance in healthcare because we have so many complex ideas that are not well defined or even well agreed upon. Uh, the other is the ability to uh, transport that information uh, between two sources. Uh, one of the big breakthroughs that we've seen recently is the transport of not only a single patient record, but tens or hundreds of thousands of records so that the data can be used for analysis and predictive modeling. Good. I love that. I love that breaking down. You know, one is what are we saying? What do the words mean? What does the codes mean? And how are we getting that from one party uh, to the other? Uh, terrific. And, so, and if you think on right. our goals uh, as HS7, we want global interoperability. And this is not a minor, a minor detail. It's, it has two ways to think about it. First, 
our standards should be used anywhere in the world and everybody needs to understand. Doesn't matter which language they talk or which business model they have. And also, if you have information, medical information, clinical information about yourself, and you send this, what we call artifact, to a clinician in France, because you are in France, you should, they, he should be able to read your information and know what happens to you. So two meanings of global. Global in the sense that everyone in the world should read your data, should be able to read your data, and global in the sense that everyone should be able to implement our standards. But this is a very big, uh, very big uh, ask, and, and we are aware of that. So this is my, this might be a softball question there, uh, Mr. Kamakur, but um, why is global uh, global understanding of, of clinical data important? America, you know, United States, we got enough problems trying to figure this all out, right? Do, do we really need to be able to interchange our clinical data with France? What's what's the plus there? What are the benefits there? Apparently, people travels. <laughs> It, would it be any help to uh, the pandemic that we just came off of? Is there is there any other? It was, uh, it was the, the, the proof of the need. You need to have a, a portal with all the data from every nation there to know where the problems are. And we didn't for the first uh, few months. So the, the pandemic uh, accelerated that, but we should have this in place for the next one. Very good. So... Uh, we talked about a little bit about origins, um, and, and it does feel like HL7's undergoing. Uh, you're at every turn now in in the discussion about healthcare in this country. Can you tell a little, talk a little bit about, and you know, uh, I'll let you brag here. Uh, HL7's influence in uh, United States healthcare, and s- certainly, Mr. Kamaker, uh, what are in, what HL7's influence is in the broader uh, global perspective. I will let Chuck talk about the U.S. and I will. Um, Throughout the United States, the uh, demands for interoperability have grown. Uh, For decades, it was okay to exchange information through uh, 20th century technology, which relied upon uh, uh, capabilities that that, um, really obfuscated the need to have information delivered uh, when and where uh, it was needed. Uh, so much of it relied upon uh, those technologies like fax or uh, even carrying a, a document uh, between institutions. Uh, the 21st century saw, saw the onset of uh, sharing data in a very large scale uh, whether banking or transportation, uh, the standards uh, that were evolving really supported the sharing of information between uh, entities that were quite often competitors. Uh, this is really analogous to what's going on in uh, the U.S. healthcare system. So when the Fresh Look Task Force Uh, began its efforts in about 2010 to see if healthcare couldn't accelerate this process to get in step with other industries and other verticals. Uh, The concept of using 
open application programming interfaces or APIs came to the fore. And uh, at that Fresh Look Task Force, uh, Graham Greve presented his concept, which evolved into FIRE and the capability to uh, exchange information uh, regardless of the site or the location. It took um, nearly five years uh, before the JSON task force um, report stated that um, open APIs was really the future. Ironically, uh, that report was authored by um, Dave McCauley and Mickey Trapathy, who uh, six years later would become the national coordinator for healthcare IT. Uh, with that report, uh, federal agencies began to uh, focus on using the open API and FIRE in particular to make it happen. Uh, with the success of uh, the small steps that began the implementation of FIRE, uh, not only federal agencies, but by and large, the private sector began to adopt this, not only with uh, Apple incorporating FIRE into the iOS for aggregation of healthcare data, but other industries uh, began to see the relevance of that capability. I think we'll talk about later the enormous steps that uh, the U.S. federal agencies have taken to make this happen. But I'm going to turn it back to Diego and have him talk about uh, fire adoption on a global scale. Well, the, we need to go back to history again to realize that uh, maybe 30 years ago, the U.S. will do something in healthcare or in interoperability, and maybe five to 10 years after that, we will adopt outside of the U.S., or 15 years after. But time passed, and when we published CDA, uh, WH7 published CDA in 2005, one year later, we were here in Argentina implementing a CDA repository. So we are, we were one year behind. And now with FIRE, since FIRE is free, FIRE is open, and we have the internet, and FIRE is the internet for healthcare, we are, used, we are doing the same thing that the US is doing in real time all over the world. We have accelerated adoption of what we create. And, and think, I think FIRE is the, the main uh, factor, the community and the ease of use. And what you see all over the world is uh, digital health programs. And all the digital health programs are, are understanding and discovering that they need the same things in terms of not only clinical staff, but also infrastructure. And, and what I define by infrastructure is uh, transport, authorization, authentication, auditing, uh, not needing to know who is who, patients, medic, uh, clinicians, organizations, insurers, users. And then what services are we trying to give the patients, uh, practices, studies, 
and what we register about them, like test results or problems or allergies or, pro or, or medications. And we need uh, to use the better terminology and we need to control that terminology in order to make exchange possible beyond two organizations, be beyond two provinces, beyond one country, maybe two countries. And then we need to register consent. And all of these pillars, what I call pillars, can be implemented using FIRE. Then you can do whatever you want clinically, but you need the infrastructure in place. You need to validate what you are sending. You need to teach your developers what you are going to do and how. And this is what FIRE does, well used. So, 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 let me... so this is for, for all, every country in the world will need eventually this. We are trying to find out this with also trying to, to get uh, help with from WHO and from PAHO and for, for the lower and medium income countries to do, be able to do the same. Very good. So let's dive into the the fire. And it sounds like the technology. This is kind of like HL seven became the 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 at least the the healthcare um, steward of fire, bringing it into the the certainly uh, the United States and sounds like uh, globally as well. And fire, excuse you know, correct me if I'm wrong here. F I H R is that right? So it's fire for for our our listeners. Um, is it uh, accelerated because it's an easier technology for users to use and interface and set up? And, and like you you implied, Mr. Kamenker, that it's actually cheaper or actually uh, less expensive than, and than previous technology. Is this why um, Fire is kind of so exciting at this is this member this point, or is it that, that the global community has come together more than it has 10, 20 years ago? Uh, I think it's a mix, but. Uh, the I think we are aligned technologically with the with the era we are living on. Usually, HL7 was five years behind or five years uh, ahead of the technology. So we begin to, we began to work with XML and UML when no one was doing that. So no one understood what the what the heck they are doing. We don't understand what they are doing. We cannot implement this. Is too too complex. Now we are in the sweet spot. We are using what everyone else is using. We are proposing the world what the world is already using. So they like it and they understand. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So, um, you know, what, what I think is interesting about HL7 is its accelerators and its accelerator uh, program. And I think in some cases, many people may have heard of your accelerators without even knowing that they're HL7. Can you talk a little bit about the accelerators, uh, Dr. Jaffe, and uh, what they do and, and maybe the names and what, what some of their roles are? Gladly. Um, today, there are eight fire accelerators. Um, when they were first envisioned, the concept was to uh, find solutions, leveraging the capabilities of FHIR to accelerate the integration of FHIR and its application uh, in, a, in a large implementation community. Um, in retrospect, the Argonaut project, which began actually the evening of the Jason Task Force report, was the first FHIR accelerator. Uh, it provided some of the key infrastructure for making um, fire uh, usable. Uh, 
with our partnership with other organizations and other SDOs, uh, this grew. Uh, we had a critical meeting um, that we called a Partners Interoperability, in which uh, the payer community and providers, chiefly clinicians, came together and said, we have a unique need to share information. And that can be accomplished most uh, seamlessly and without great effort using fire capabilities. And from that, the Da Vinci Project was born and has grown into a nationwide and in some cases international effort uh, for uh, data exchange. It is this implementation which is at the center of the fire uh, accelerator process. This increased um, uh, exponentially with the addition of fire accelerators to support uh, patient care and research. Uh, the Codex Fire Accelerator uh, now, which supports um, not only oncology, but also cardiology and genomics. Uh, it grew to include um, a research accelerator supporting not only regulated research for uh, pharmaceutical products, but also uh, translational medicine and, and other uh, scientific endeavors became known as Vulcan. Uh, most recently, uh, there have been two new accelerators. One is FAST, the Fire, Acceler Fire uh, Accelerator, uh, Fire at Scale Task Force, the FAST Accelerator was born at ONC as an internal project and uh, only uh, ported to HL7 uh, in the last year. Uh, FAST provided uh, much of the infrastructure uh, requirements to make fire truly at scale. And most recently, Helios. Helios emerged after a four-year effort with uh, the CDC to enable the exchange of uh, public health information uh, far more seamlessly than the CDC had been able to accomplish without fire. In fact, of the 3,000 public health agencies that report data to the CDC, half of them fax Excel spreadsheets at the end of each month. It's not a efficient way to um, evaluate uh, pandemic challenges, for example. So with that growth, uh, the fire accelerator community uh, impacted many, many areas of care, uh, research, and population medicine. What has been critical is the collaboration amongst uh, fire accelerators to close gaps and to reduce ambiguity caused by overlap. Why don't I turn it over to Diego for... Uh, I think one of the more important things is also reuse. So what, what I, I've been looking with, with uh, uh, proud, very proud of, of our process is that one accelerator is reusing the product of the other accelerators. So Da Vinci is creating uh, uh, a prior authorization, and then uh, uh, 
uh, Codex is reusing this prioritization uh, implementation guide or, or, or artifacts, but uh, DaVinci reused the US core that was created by Argonaut. So we are building upon the others people work previews that was already tested. So this is new, this is very important. It's not only coordination, it's also reuse. And as I told you at the beginning, we cannot ask the industry to create a new artifact for every new need. We need to reuse, we need to make costs down, not up because of interoperability. So the more, the more we reuse, the less money we spend in this, and this is what we want. I think, I think it goes without saying that this could not have happened without the work of Viet uh, Nguyen and uh, Diego Kaminker, who have led the creation of the HL7 um, implementation division. Uh, we weren't uh, even considering bifurcating the work of HL7 into a standards development entity and an implementation one, but rather work hand in glove to support the growing needs for uh, more robust standards and uh, uh, devise means of uh, reaching implementation that shared common goals. And uh, a lot of the credit goes to Diego and Viet for orchestrating and leading that. Well, Diego and Viet, I would say, and you know, uh, from my experience as a government regulator and now being in the industry, I think it's it's the accelerator program, the the implementation with the standards development, mixing those two and how those are coordinated, and the participation you have, uh, it's very exciting. It's almost revolutionary how you bring standards and and requirements and, and rules of the road. Uh, for the exchange of data to, you know, to the government almost as a platter. So two things I'd like you to talk about for a second. What kind of participation uh, or who are the participants in the accelerator programs? And then what does the handoff look like uh, when you send it to uh, the government and the government adopts it as, as the standard or as the implementation guide? Um, how does that process work? Uh, uh, because I think that process is is much better than than what we've seen before now, which is you know waiting for twenty years for a standards de development organization to hand a book to the government and then they adopt it, right? Or maybe they don't. So maybe touch on those two things: participation and and the handoff to the government. So first, before we talk about the government per se, let me talk about some of the collaboration without which we could not have gotten to this point. And, and one of them was with the SMART initiative, a, a project that began at Boston Children's Hospital and has matured uh, hand in glove uh, with the uh, FIRE uh, pr platform. I think uh, it brought initially not only capabilities like authentication and security, uh, but also a, a capability to create apps that uh, supported uh, the use of fire. Uh, collaboration with other SDOs from ISO to IHE, and more recently with um, NCPDP and others, uh, because 
the use of fire is fundamental in uh, data exchange. And I'm delighted to say that early work with, um, with uh, DICOM uh, will soon bear fruit in, in enabling the exchange of clinical images. When the uh, fire accelerators began, one of the opportunities was to include government agencies in the process. Uh, I think uh, two of the earliest uh, agencies to uh, enunciate their uh, needs were uh, ONC and CMS. Uh, both of them brought their unique capabilities and participated in the accelerator projects, not only from a concept basis, but from an implementation one. Uh, more recently, other uh, federal agencies have loudly applauded this work from uh, FDA, which is evaluating real-world clinical trials, NIH, which is using uh, early efforts around fire for um, not only clinical care, but also basic research, and uh, clearly uh, the CDC. Um, Diego is uh, spearheading some of the efforts to bring the agencies uh, up to the kinds of uh, capabilities uh, with education and training. Uh, and he has uh, fostered a lot of the work. So I'd like Diego to comment on that before we talk about the uh, real world transformation that's occurred in the last year with CMS and ONC. Yes, the fire is easy if you do easy stuff. So when you begin to complicate the problem, also fire gets a little more complicated. So what we do in our courses is to have some basic uh, training that it will just give you a, a hint on what to do and, and when and what fire is about and how to know the, the basics. That's a, a four-week course. But we also have a, an intermediate course for hardcore developers where they need to in, integrate their own EHRs or, or any other product with fire doing what we call a facade or reverse facade. And we are trying to get these into every agency. One of the agencies that is uh, using our courses a lot is uh, CDC. We, I think we, we already uh, work at training like uh, 200 developers and clinicians for the CDC. So they are uh, also for the, the vital records community. They are trying to transform their death certificates from the old standards to the new ones. So I think fire will be everywhere from the moment you are born to the moment you die. <laughs> from Adam and Eve to the apocalypse, fire will be there. <laughs> um, Dr. Jaffe, you, you mentioned the, uh, the government, uh, the process with the government. You also said earlier in the program that the U.S. federal agencies have made enormous steps. Um, it certainly sounds like the education with CDC is one of those. I think um, uh, four years ago, the CDC uh, presented uh, their approach uh, for aggregating uh, morbidity and mortality reporting using fire. And, and I think 
It went by the glib name of Death on Fire. But really, it's grown uh, to be able to um, rapidly deploy the kind of information that's uh, aggregated at the bedside, is developed at the bedside, and then aggregated um, by uh, the CDC. Uh, I think uh, CMS was uh, at the fore uh, of, of really understanding that sharing data between uh, payers and providers uh, with CMS being the largest of the payers was really critical. This not only improved the way uh, uh, billing could be accomplished, but from the patient and the clinician perspective, dramatically changed the concept of prior authorization. Um, CMS is evaluating the concepts of using fire endpoints for uh, prior authorization and really uh, changing the time frame and the cost uh, for authorizing uh, evaluation technologies and such as imaging and treatment. Um, the uh, cost that has been saved uh, in the near term by the pilot projects already establishes the validity. We have a, a rather unique partnership with the AMA uh, to look at the reduction in clinical burden, uh, which is really transformative if uh, prior authorization can be accomplished in near real time. Um, at, at the level of uh, ONC, um, the end of last year uh, saw the requirement for uh, buyer endpoint capabilities within certified electronic health records. This is just the beginning of the process uh, that will ultimately uh, lead to uh, uh, testing of uh, fire capabilities and the real uh, solutions that come to the fore. Uh, part of this is envisioned by uh, uh, Diego and Viet in the implementation division and what we're now calling the foundry where the mainstay of uh, capabilities includes, but not limited to uh, testing. So let me ask uh, Diego to comment on that, please. Well, I'm still uh, hooked on history. And I think I wrote a diagram where we see the evolution of our specifications. And in the beginning, like Adam and Eve in the eighties, it was a book. And I remember reading the book and trying to interpret the book like it was the Bible. So what they have trying, what are they trying to say here? How we implement this? This was our discussion in Spanish, reading the, the book in English and trying to understand what these people in the US are talking about. And years after, and there were no, no examples in the book, just text. So we began, I, I personally began to insist that if you don't show examples, people don't know what to do. So we begin to request examples, at least static examples, to see what we need to do in, for, for each use case or, or at least for several use cases 
in, in one artifact. And then uh, Chuck talked about APIs. And what APIs are not are static. This is pure behavior. What happens if I press this button? If I press this button, somebody goes to a server and gets the information for me. Or I create something in a server or I whatever. So the foundry will try to make people discover what happens when they press the button. What happens between servers? Discover our specs and the result of using our specs in EHRs or in systems. So this gives us a place not only to discover, but also to test. So I can create my client, use one of what we call reference servers, reference implementations, that will do what is expected for them to do if they are used. Implement our specs. So if I do a prior authorization, I want to look at the workflow and see what happens. That's the foundry, a big example, a collection of examples, a live example. So our evolution was from the book that has to be interpreted to something that they can touch and feel and see what happens and try myself. That's our aim, to make our specifications more implementable by giving them this life somewhere. That, that's fascinating. So, so what I'm hearing is another revolution is the the how-to instructions, right? That that you're not just handing over a book and expecting somebody to build an IKEA sofa. You're uh, you're you're showing them how and giving examples. That that's and, and it's interactive. That's that's fascinating. Um, uh, going back earlier before the show, uh, Dr. Jaffe, you said that uh, HL7 had some involvement in a recent moment at the White House uh, with regard to social determinants of health. What what what's happened recently? Yeah, a right White House conference uh, about six weeks ago on social needs uh, brought to the fore uh, how important social determinants were in healthcare delivery and patient outcomes. Uh, by some estimates, as much as 40% of uh, patient outcome and perhaps even more costs are related to social determinants like health needs, uh, uh, accessibility, uh, information exchange, healthcare literacy, and so forth. Um, at the White House conference, uh, we proposed a, a uh, process uh, that leveraged the capabilities of FIRE, and an initiative was born called Sync for Social Needs, uh, which, uh, uh, when successful, will be able to take um, the data elements that have been developed at Gravity and other entities and actually exchange them in the electronic health record uh, to bring social needs and social needs information to the point of care so that uh, clinicians and uh, para-health professionals can really um, provide a much more effective and less costly healthcare. And so we view the sink for social needs as not an end in itself, but a milestone in the process by which uh, FIRE brings capability to these um, programs. I think uh, at the um, 
Hubert Humphrey, uh, the uh, Department of Health and Human Services on Friday, uh, Sequoia announced the first six QHINs uh, for what had been a years-long evolution of TEFCA. Um, the first six um, entities will be able to provide a significantly better aligned um, process for not only the transport port, but also the aggregation of data. So uh, at that meeting, one of the CEOs for um, the QHIN said that really the future of Sequoia uh, rests with the uh, development and implementation of the uh, TEFCA FIRE roadmap. And I think more than ever, that's true as uh, we bring this capability to bear. Uh, before I go, I wouldn't, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that all of uh, HL7 standards are fully accessible uh, without any royalty, any charge for implementation. It's been a remarkable journey to see the adoption of FIRE by large and diverse communities uh, without the impediment of uh, charge brought to bear. And so we'll continue to embrace that concept and see uh, the enormous changes that FIRE and HL7 have brought to healthcare. Uh, I do thank, I do thank uh, Weedy uh, that's been uh, on the fore of sharing information, um, not only with its community, uh, but beyond. So my applause go out to you and, and thanks for allowing us to join the, this podcast. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Diego. Uh, Weedy, Weedy uh, we're honored to have you on the podcast and, and we love you having uh, participating in all of our uh, uh, um, all of our activities. Uh, before we go, uh, other places, um, do we want to point out resources where, for example, Dr. Jaffe, where uh, people can find those standards, uh, where they might be able to participate in either the, the global uh, HL7, Diego, or, or, or local um, work here in the Usually States? Two places. If you want yeah. to read the spec, hl7.org slash fire is the place where the spec lives. And if you want to join the community, chat.fire.org is we where we are all together discussing. So I would also like to uh, uh, announce uh, an important uh, opportunity that will take place in conjunction with the HL7 workgroup meeting in May in New Orleans. We are going to have an expanded program that uh, Diego has come up with the innovative name of Workgroup Meeting Plus. Uh, all kidding aside, we'll bring together uh, people to discuss uh, the uh, capabilities, uh, have a broadened community, um, discuss the policy implication for these changes, and have uh, an increasingly expanding dialogue between the people who develop and implement FIRE and the people who use it and benefit from it. And we expect uh, 
this opportunity to to grow and grow. So um, you go to hl7.org, you can see the announcement for the work group meeting in New Orleans and the expanded plans for the work group meeting plus. So I welcome all new participants as well as the old HL7 members who will find uh, some of the information sharing by our guests and uh, their fellow participants. So look forward to that event in May. Terrific. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Diego. Uh, exciting stuff with fire with HL seven uh, and you know, the, the, the interoperability and the transfer of clinical electronic data uh, between parties, uh, lots of lots of activities going on here. Great discussion uh, with Double Doctor Charles Jaffe, HL7 uh, CEO, and Diego Kamenker, HL7's Deputy Chief Standards Implementation Officer. Thank you both. Appreciate you having uh, having uh, joining me today. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy Podcast, where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. You can find this episode and many more on our website, weedy.org. Thank you all for joining us and be safe.